Welcome everyone to In The Wind, a podcast where we talk about the wind industry in Asia Pacific and I interview people from the wind industry to talk about their careers, to talk about things that they've been involved in that they think are interesting and to talk about the future. And today I'm lucky enough to be joined by Bud Abeyrama, who is the manager of Vesta Sighting Solutions team in Asia Pacific. And for those who that means nothing to, that basically means he takes care of all of the wind modeling, all of the load modeling for uh, the Vestas wind turbine um, team in Asia Pacific region. I met Bud in 2009. At the time, um, Bud was a mythical work experience student that everyone loved. And I had actually just joined Vestas as a work experience student as well at that time. Um, but Bud was away on this worldwide jaunt he was, he was just away, um, but every he was sort of this guy that everyone knew and everyone thought was amazing. And I sort of felt a bit intimidated, actually, being the new kid on the block. And um, anyway, since then, I've had the pleasure of working with Bud. He returned from his worldwide jaunt and joined the Wind and Sight team that I was a work student, experience student for. And we worked together for almost a decade with our friendship culminating in the fact that we have a... Uh, we have a spot at our own table at a Singaporean cafe. I'm excited to talk to Bud today because um, he's had he spent some time in China, which I think is really interesting to see a huge part of the Asia Pacific economy and and wind market, um, but a very much a, a market unto itself. So I'd like to talk a bit about his time in China. Um, he's someone who spent his whole career in wind. He knows nothing else, um, similar to myself. So interesting for us to both reflect on that. Um, and he's also someone who has been involved in the whole of Asia Pacific for a long time, uh, working not just in Australia, not just in China, but in every market in Asia Pacific. And I think that brings a quite an interesting insight. So I'd like to welcome Bud. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Michael. And thank you for the uh, interesting introduction. Very flattering. No, no worries. Um, yeah, I, I hope you enjoyed it. I, I spent a lot of time writing that. <laughs> I did. 10 out of 10. Excellent. Okay. So um, to start with, I'd like to talk a bit about your time breaking into the wind industry, bud. So uh, as I already mentioned, <laughs> you're, a, you're a wind-only guy and um, you joined Vestas as a work experience student. So tell me a bit about that. How did, how did you end up at Vestas? Yeah, what, would, what was that like at that time? Sure. I, I guess I could summarize that by saying it was a happy accident. Um, for, for me, I was an engineering student in, in Australia and I was looking at what you know good career prospects they could be in in Australia for someone who had studied engineering, and I was I put my mind towards energy. That's what I wanted to do, but that wasn't necessarily renewable energy as such. It was anything. You know, I was looking at mining companies and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then the time came of uh, when I needed to apply for work experience positions as part of my degree, and this company called Vestas uh, appeared, which yep. I'd never heard of before. Oh, good um, name, though. It's a good name. It's a good name. Um, and so I applied anyway, um, mm -hmm. uh, and I went in for the interview. I had a number of interviews with a, a number of different companies at the time. And to be honest, Vestas was the, the most impressive one that, that I talked to. And it really? seemed like a really exciting – yeah, really. It was uh, – wind, wind power at that time was very much alternative energy, in Australia yes. at least. Absolutely. Um, what what uh, year uh, are we talking uh, here? 2000 and... This was 2007. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe, very maybe early days. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so it was early days, um, and I didn't know much about it. It seemed like an exciting place when I came in and had a chat with the people here. And 
um, yeah, so I took up the position and here I am, still there. Absolutely. And, and what were you doing originally? Because you, were, you didn't first join Siding. So what, what were you doing at that time when you first joined Vestas? Yeah, so I was um, hired to do uh, data analysis on uh, operational projects. So basically, they'd, um, Vestas had just um, built a wind farm um, from which they had installed a lot of sensors which were collecting a lot of high-frequency data. Mm-hmm. And basically, they, did, they didn't know what to do with this data, and so they decided, let's get a student in to analyze that data and make sense of it. So that was my very first job at Vestas. Okay. It's it's kind of yeah, crazy that... to me to, to think that, you know, I mean, in the last 10 years, or it's, it's more than 10 years now, but around that time period, how much we sort of take for granted that that technology has changed. And at that time, you know, connecting wind farms and collecting all the data from those sensors was kind of new and exciting. Whereas today, it's, it almost feels like it, it's impossible to imagine a world where that wouldn't exist. Yeah, it's automatic now, right? So that, that's that's really true. Like a lot of that stuff at the time, you know, you had to go to site and you had to like essentially plug into the turbines, right? But now um, there's, yeah, everything just happens automatically. So that that first project of analyzing that data for me sort of culminated me into me becoming one of the sort of like a data analyst for all you know service um, sites for Vestas around um, Australia, New Zealand area, mm-hmm. and then um, yeah, so one of my big projects that I started to do at that time was um, setting or helping to set up a system where all of the data um, from the SCADA systems of wind turbines, uh, wind farms around the world, was getting stored into a a central data center in in Denmark, right? And and now, yeah, as you mentioned, that's second nature now. Like, we couldn't imagine doing business without that. But at that time, that didn't exist. Mm. And so... I was, you know, helping to get all of our sites connected and transferring data correctly and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, seems like a basic problem now. But at the time, it was cutting edge. <laughs> there you go. All right. So um, from from there, what just I'd be interested to get a bit of a brief thing. I mean, I know your career since then, but maybe you could just for our listeners give a give a very brief rundown of what sort of what were the steps that you took between then and now to end up where you are today. Essentially, I got uh, a bit bored of service, um, mm-hmm. the service side, looking at operational wind farms, and then I saw these guys who were selling wind farms. I mean, the, the turbines just run them run themselves, right? Surely. Exactly, exactly. It's just, yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I wanted to, I, I saw the shiny light of the guys who were selling turbines, and that looked like a lot of fun, mm-hmm. um, and it turns out it was. And so I got into the, um, the what we call the siting area, um, wind and site, um, and um, that's where I've been ever since. Um, worked my way through a few different positions in that role. Um, can you just give a, uh, I mean, I tried to introduce it quite poorly at the beginning, but can you give your, you know, brief outline of what you think seasiding as for people who might not necessarily understand or know about that? Yeah, okay. The, the, I guess the textbook definition is, is pretty much what you said, right? So responsible for, um, you know, designing the layout of wind farms, for calculating the energy that is going to be produced by a wind farm, making sure that the turbine is suitable in terms of loads. So the, these kind of things is, is the textbook definition. I would mm-hmm. say more broadly now that I, I think the definition is that our, our job is to be responsible or to understand the climate of the wind farm, so understand all the elements of the climate and how that how the technology interacts with the climate. Um, and so that that's just my interpretation of how our, our role has become a bit more broad than what it used to be. Yeah, it's a sexy um, definition. Yeah. I like it. I should start using that one. <laughs> all yours. <laughs> Wonderful. 
So, so, so basically, yeah. you, you you landed in sighting. There was this handsome young guy by the name of Michael who was sort of already there, and you decided to stay. I did. I did. We started to teach ourselves how to analyze wind, <laughs> and we're still teaching ourselves, I guess. <laughs> it's part of the fun. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Thanks for that, bud. So. I, th I think it's good to have that, and, uh, and as we mentioned at the start, you've sort of worked your way from work experience kid up to now running that team for Asia Pacific, which I think is pretty pretty impressive little progression there. Um, so now that we talked a bit about that, I'd like to talk a little bit about a couple of areas which you've been involved in that you've sort of had experience in through your ten years in in um, siting and in wind energy. It, we sort of talked about this previously, and and got a couple of ideas for things where you feel that have been really formative either to the industry or to your place into it. And the first one that we talked about was uh, the changing role of siting and how you believe that over the time that you've been involved, there's really been a shift in how siting is approached and how it's used and those things. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you feel about that? Sure. I guess the, the ch changing role of siting has come as a necessity as because of the changing role of wind power you know mm. so if you look back a, a time some time ago um, it was a, a feed-in tariff world right so you had a, a guaranteed amount of revenue that you get for the energy you produce this has all sort of disappeared recently with the advent of auctions and other uh, you know corporate PPAs merchant pro this so sort of stuff is happening right why, why do you think I mean why has that changed for those who aren't sort of industry insiders what what's making that leap because it, it, these, um, what, what, we, what governments, I guess, around the world have found is that this leads to cheaper power, right? Sure. So it's, in the end, better for everybody because we, um, you get more competition into the market and then that drives down the prices. Can I, can I reframe that a bit in saying that originally when we, maybe probably around the time that you and I joined the industry, that um, as you sort of said, wind power, even solar power at that time was a very alternative energy and quite an expensive energy source. And people didn't have a lot of experience about um, using it, about deploying it, those sort of things. So in order to kickstart those industries, governments were quite supportive in terms of giving good incentives and, and sort of good business cases to really kickstart those things. We've now reached a point where that's not true anymore. It is a very established technology and, and it doesn't need support from governments and people like that. So it has to compete in the free market. And that sort of then leads to a position where there's not the same, you know, big fat um, sort of incentives to produce anymore. Does that I think it's a together? very good summary. Very yeah. good summary. Yeah. All right, so um, so, so that's basically so I guess the that, change, and and how how has that impacted siding? Yeah, so the reason that impacts siding is that now every step along the the value chain for a wind turbine manufacturer, I guess you could say, we're trying to maximize the value that we can bring, right? And and siding has a very big impact in that because um, the energy is you know is the output of the wind farm, right? And that's the most valuable thing, and and the the changes that we can make can really um, have an impact to the amount of energy that you can get from your side. Yeah, so would so, you say that in terms of ultimately, as you say, the output, the energy is what you're getting paid for. And in order to increase that, there's only really a couple of ways you can do it. One, you can bring a bigger turbine or a different turbine, uh, or mm -hmm. you can somehow optimize the site and operate the turbine and place the turbine in a certain way, which then lets you produce more. Exactly. 
Yeah. And I guess sighting is at the center of both of those things. Lucky us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess, you know, in the past, our, our role may have been, you know, just calculate the energy, calculate the load, sign it off, it's done, good to go. But yep. now it's much more about optimizing and finding, you know, if we tweak this and we tweak that, what's going to be the impact? How can we get the most out of every single side? Okay. And how do you think that's helping to move the industry forward? Well, I, I think what it does in the end is that we find ways to extract value, which have um, actually little cost attached to them, right? So okay. then you're bringing the, the overall cost of energy of these wind farms down, which makes them much more competitive in the, in the market. And, and when you say competitive in the market, you mean not just against other wind projects, but ultimately against no, coal, against, against any, any anything. form of energy, yeah. Yeah, and that's definitely. what you see in the market analysis that shows the, you know the levelized cost of energy of wind dropping um, substantially. That's not just because of the the prices falling. I mean that's one <laughs> one aspect, but it's also that we can extract more from less. Yeah, very good. Um, I, I, one thing I'd also like to ask about this: Have there been what have been the failures along the way? Well, I mean it's not always a rosy linear path for these things. Can you think of things where siding where it that the sort of changing role of siding where you think it's gone too far or it's sort of started to go in the wrong direction? That's an interesting question. Failures. Um, I'm in my rosy mood, so I don't have my, my negative glasses on it. You've got to get your sales but, um, cap off. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. I, I don't think it's gone too far, to be honest, well, uh, because I, I think it that there's more to go. Sure. I, I, yeah. I, I think it's a very young industry, a young yep. sort of profession. And I think that they there's a lot of figuring out as it goes along <laughs> happening. Yep. And I think that everyone in the industry is becoming more and more mature, more and, you know, getting into a sense of alignment. So the the, the funny thing about the, uh, our, our role is that there is, if you compare it to other in engineering discipline, there's a relative lack of standards and you know accepted mm. ways of doing things and then there's a lot of different you know big players in the industry take different approaches to, to try and get to the same result and so um a few years ago i think we saw that starting to diverge um quite a lot you know different um uh, people taking different approaches and now i think we're we're not really seeing it start to converge yet but i think that everyone's more and more on the same page and I think that 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 will happen in the future right? definitely and I uh, I think for, with that you know part of the issue that I've seen in this area is you can optimize everything to the you know a millionth of a millimeter but if you have a diverging view of some of these things particularly around the wind resource at the site or the conditions the optimization that you do in one area might be making the, the customer's case worse because they have a different assumption on that particular area. So it's one thing that maybe, I'm not sure where I'd call it a failure, but maybe a learning along the way is that we really needed to make sure that we have alignment on some of these core things. Otherwise, you can't do some of this sort of optimization very effectively. Exactly, yeah, it's well put. Nice. Okay, I'd like to move now on, on now and talk a little bit about your time in China. Um, Again, as I mentioned at the start, I think for those involved in Asia Pacific, they know that China is kind of its own market. It sits on its own. Um, it's accountable to no one. Um, and you took the decision to go and work there for a couple of years, um, head up the team there. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that and start with 
how did you make your decision to move to China? It's a it's a big move from a Mel, for a Melbourne boy to go and base yourself in Beijing. What, what inspired you to do that? Yeah, so for me, it was a little bit of a no-brainer, actually. I've always been interested in the Asian region and the Asian market, and it's always seemed like it has such a large influence on the rest of the world. It is the growth area. It is the future, right? So when when the opportunity presented itself to, to you know, get to deep dive into that sort of area, I, mm. it was a bit of a no-brainer to take it, even though it is kind of scary and unknown and, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of unknowns going into it, but I thought, you know, the payoff is going to be big to, to try and understand that. Sure. And and so you arrived, you, you'd you been working in, in siting in, in Melbourne and across Asia Pacific for quite some time at that point. You arrive in, in the Beijing office. What did you find was different about your role, about the way the siting, the way the business worked um, in China compared to what you were used to? <laughs> Everything. <laughs> it's probably the answer. <laughs> you might, you might need to be a bit more specific. <laughs> yeah, it's like stepping into a different world, right? So in some ways, you, you find what well, you feel like China is 10 years behind. And then in other ways, you feel like China is 10 years ahead. Okay. Um, and so it's, it's about trying to make sense of that and, and why things are the way they are, because everything is different. Everything is different for a reason. It's not immediately apparent what the reasons are, and you have to do mm. a lot of digging to try and figure that out. And until you figure it out, it really doesn't make sense. Yep. And then what I, what I found is it's kind of, it's not even just useless, it's a bit silly to to resist the system and to say that, oh, I think this way is doing is better than what you currently do. Because it re really, it, it just means you're missing the point of why it is the way it is. Um, sure. So I, that was that was a big learning for me. Like, don't don't try and bring your external Western views and try and apply them directly in China, because mm. it, it, China's different for a reason. <laughs> try to understand why, why it is the way it is, and then, you know, slowly make improvements to, the, to that if, if you can. Definitely. You said earlier that um, you felt that ten, China was 10 years behind in some ways and 10 years ahead in others. Can you explain that a little more? Yeah. So if you look at <laughs> when I arrived in China, the way that wind farms were being developed um, was it was almost like a cookie cutter wind farm. You have a, every wind farm was 50 megawatts. It follows the same basic design, mm. right? And, th and there was no thought about um, optimizing that, you know, to have larger wind farms or you know something a little bit different. Sure. Um, it was just the standard approach. This is the way we've done it. This is the way we'll continue to do it forever. You're just sort of like um, making widgets, right? <laughs> Except that those yeah, widgets exactly, happen right? to be 50 megawatt wind farms. Yeah, exactly. And and that that seemed a bit bizarre to me. Whereas you sure. know, in in the rest the rest of the world we seem to be trying to optimize everything down to the the last millimeter and here we just have a standard solution which we roll off this the shelf. Mm -hmm. Um so that, that seemed behind, but I mean, th there were advantages to that, obviously, in terms of economies of scale and, um, y you know, that ha having re re requiring relatively lower, I guess, technical knowledge to roll out gigawatts of, of power, right? Like when you look at that sort of thing, it, it, there's benefits to it in that sense. Yep. Um, but I, I think in, in the ways that, that China was ahead, I think I could, I could use an example of uh, just day, day, my day-to-day -day life in China, right? So when I arrived in China, there was, it was very much a, a cash economy. Mm. Um, everything you have to pay in cash. But by the time I left China two years later, I paid everything on my phone. I never carried around cash. They yep. they skipped the, the whole card um, 
<laughs> phenomenon, right? The, the, the cards just didn't exist. It went from cash to phones. Um, and in that sense, that's what I think China's really far ahead with, that how fast things move. Things yeah. change so quickly. Uh, yeah, so, so that's really interesting. To, to... Definitely. All right, bringing it back to specifically wind and, uh, and um, some of the things that you were involved in, um, can you talk a little bit about the so some of the technical projects or things that you were involved in while you were in China? Sure. So China was uh, one of the first places um, where I saw a requirement for AEP guarantees from wind farms. Okay. And that was... Can you give a bit a of bit... a, just a brief outline of what that means? Yeah, so essentially it means um, guaranteeing the energy output from a wind farm, which is something that is not really industry standard. So usually the, the normal guarantees are you guarantee the output from a single turbine based on, you know, very well-known wind conditions. So basically um, what for those who aren't in the wind industry, we the manufacturer will build a wind, wind turbine and they will say, okay, under under this condition or at this wind speed, it will produce this much. And you can test that on an individual turbine to show that the turbine can produce what we say it will produce. But on a on a whole wind farm level, there is no such test, or at least no standard test uh, globally in the industry. And this is what you're talking about in China is this sort of more wind farm level test coming in. Yeah, it's pretty bizarre, isn't it? When you think about that, our industry, we have this giant, you know, machine, which is the wind farm, which actually doesn't really have a fuel gauge. You don't really know what's going into it. Mm. Um, <laughs> and no one's really been able to solve that. But but my point is that the uh, China was the first place where I saw that they were making attempts to, to define this fuel gauge and so to give, a, you know, a full wind farm output guarantee. So that was one of the first challenges that I that um, I came across, and I think it's still an ongoing challenge in China. Well, no, not just China, no, it's, it's spread around the whole world, this, uh, this concept. Yep. Um, another, I guess one of the achievements in China um, that, that I happened to make, well, not by myself, but with, well, I guess I happened to influence, was um, bringing um, tall towers to China. So, yep. um, as I mentioned, you know, there was this cookie-cutter approach for building wind farms in China, and one of the elements of that approach was Every wind farm had 80 meter towers, right? yep. but there's it didn't make a lot of sense in a lot of parts of China where you have extremely low wind speeds and very high wind shear, which means that if you have tall towers, you're going to get a really um, rapid increase in in wind speed. Okay, um, so basically, so, when we talk about a tall wind shear that or high wind shear, that basically means that as you go up uh, higher off the ground, you're getting very higher and higher wind speed at a very high rate. So while you might have a low wind speed close to the ground, if you can go up to 100 or 150 meters to a very tall height, you're actually capturing this much higher wind speed that exists up there, and you're having a lot more fuel for your turbine. So in a, in a lot of parts of China, it made a on, on paper it made a lot of economic sense um, to have a wind farm with tall towers. Right? Mm -hmm. So the the cost of the steel of the extra steel required for the tower is paid off by the extra energy you generate. Yep. Um, and and that that made a lot of sense to me. Um, yep. And it but convincing people on the ground in China that this was a good idea was a really uphill battle. Um, because there was very much an ingrained mindset of no, an eight, a tower needs to be 80 meters. Anything more than that is, you know, too technically challenging. We don't have cranes in the country that can be that tall. There's a lot of, uh, you know, safety issues. Blah 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 blah. There was like, 
anything you could think of was was offered as an excuse not to do that. But sure. it took pretty much two years to to sort of take each one of those things one by one and slowly, slowly convince people. Um, okay, so that was the strategy yeah, but, to take it one by one and just chip away. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Good, good. Okay, I think um, I think it, I could talk about China all day, but I think um, I think at this point we should move on and talk a little bit about the future. I think it's clearly a very exciting time to be part of the wind industry in Asia Pacific, and but even more exciting is the future. So, but tell me a little bit, what do you what do you see for the future of the wind industry in uh, in Asia Pacific? Yeah, well, when you say Asia Pacific, it's it's very broad, right? So absolutely, um, I, I think I think the the markets in Asia Pacific are really different, and the chat, the you know, the short term challenges for them will be quite different in each one. Long term, if you look at 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 the world, as I mentioned at the start, you move away from feed-in tariff and, as you mentioned, subsidies to this this future where the power prices are becoming less and less and becoming more and more uncertain as well um, with some, some variation there. So it's about how wind can uh, be a part of that. It's about uh, the other challenges that you see on a global level going forward is the high penetration of renewables um, overtaking the old uh, fossil fuel generation and yep. how, how that's going to take part. So there's going to be these um, interesting challenges from from my narrow view of the world in terms of just looking at at sighting it's how can you how can you change the perception of uncertainty of wind right is is the real challenge right so currently there is a perception that you know wind fluctuates there's windy days and there's there's not windy days and sure that's correct as well um but it's about how can we change the way that we design our wind farms how can we change the way that we do our analysis to bring this uncertainty down to to make to enable site uh, to, to enable wind to become a bigger part of the energy generation mix. Sure. So it's something about being able to say, sure, the wind doesn't always blow. We know that it will blow on Wednesday, <laughs> and therefore you're fine. Perhaps, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and maybe it will it will blow on Wednesday, or and in this particular location, and it will blow on Tuesday in this location, and so overall it'll be fine. You know, so it's about finding the these these ways. Um, becoming smarter in the way we do things to enable this intermittent power source to actually um, become a really critical, a, a large part of the generation mix. I agree. I think that's a, I mean, no, no surprise we're aligned on this one. We work together. I, I think it's um, it's definitely it's the problem for now and the problem for the future as well. Um, but I think we're on the right track, right? I mean, certainly the, the trajectory of wind for the last decade that we've been involved in has been uh, this rocket ride of, of success, and I, I'm, I'm quite excited about what, what that brings for the future. Excellent. Really okay, bud. Things. I think with that, we should, uh, we should call it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for enlightening everyone a bit about the wind industry in Asia Pacific and what's been going on for the last decade from your perspective. And I hope everyone learned something. So, yeah, bud, thanks for joining me on In the Wind. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Michael. Dimension Media.